happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 160 for January the 1st, 2020. And I'm sure it will be a challenge to get that rolling off the tongue as 2019 has for the past 365 days. So my name is Wes Fryer and I'm coming to you from a very mild, balmy Oklahoma City. We were actually, it's gotten a little bit cooler, but we had one of the warmer Christmas days on record. I think it got up into the low 70s, something like 72 or something, kind of crazy. Um, but I am the technology integration and innovation specialist. I still have to really think about that uh, at the Cassidy School here in wonderful Oklahoma City. And I'm joined as always by the guru of the North, as he is known by some, Dr. Jason Neifer. Dr. Neifer, happy holidays, happy Festivus. I understand uh, you've been washing away, uh, not co being covered up with snow in Missoula. Yes, that's true. Uh, I am joining you tonight from Missoula, Montana, uh, where I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy. And we've had a really wet Christmas season here. And I don't really know what to account for that other than general warming trends. But we tend to get a lot of rain now in the fall, kind of like Seattle or Portland might. Um, and then our snow tends to come a little later. So we had a little bit of snow on and off the last couple of weeks, but mostly, especially in the last 72 hours, it's been mostly rain. And so now it's avalanche season here in western Montana as rain and snow join together to build up big things. Um, but uh, while I'd love to talk about M Montana weather, which is a, a topic that Montanans do really enjoy talking about, that's not what this show is about. Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room about? Well, Jason, we are a weekly ed tech focused, educational technology focused show where we look at the past week's news through an educational lens, as it were. And we have, I think, I mean, some, you can go back because we have 160 shows of links in our Google Doc, uh, which you can find at edtechsr.com slash links. But tonight is definitely going to be, you know, close to the record books in terms of the number of links. So we will not be getting through all of these, um, in part because we took Christmas Day off last week. And also the week before, we had an end of the year tech shopping cart, uh, you know, ideas for your family, friends and others that you're buying tech gifts for. for. And so we we actually skipped a, a week, you know, two weeks of of tech news. And even though the holiday season may not be the busiest time for announcements and things like that, there is a lot going on. And so I just started to read the first article that Jason put in and, you know, fell into a rabbit hole of, uh, you know, a hundred different things. So we can we could do a show alone um, on that one. But where would you like to begin? And not to say that we have to start with that one. Um, where would you like to begin? And just to give everyone a preview, because if you do look at the Google Doc, um, unlike our uh, episodes, which kind of uh, sometimes list chronologically what we talk about, I just usually try to get all the links in there. We have uh, categories. So categories are tonight, Alex, looking forward, looking back, the technology correction, drones, space surveillance, social media, media literacy, security, digital ethics, the lovely miscellaneous category, which only has one article tonight, uh, <clears throat> a book recommendation, and then our geeks of the week, which we always save for last. So, Dr. Neifer, where shall we begin tonight? Well, let's make sure this doesn't turn to a rabbit hole, but let's start out with the kind of looking forward, looking back articles. And I, of course, have not been surprised that the last two weeks of media have been really dominated by end of decade 
uh, uh, coverage because we are at the end of the 2010s, and uh, some calendar nerds will tell you that the decade actually doesn't end until next year, but we'll just pretend, since the numbers could conveniently play that way when they're written down, that we are at the end of a decade. And, you know, let's be honest, it's been an extraordinary 10 years in technology development, and I know both Wes and I have referred to this, and a lot of the ways I tend to frame talks that I do with teachers and administrators at conferences to talk about the the speed at which technology has been impacting our culture. And there's just no comparison, uh, even in the major technological evolutions like the printing press, uh, various agricultural revolutions, nothing has spread as quickly as the internet or caused so much cultural change. And yet here we are arguably in the second full decade of the kind of technology revolution, and we're at a bit of a crossroads. So Wes, you referred to an interesting article, uh, Audrey Waters, who writes at the Hack Education blog, uh, released uh, her 100 worst ed tech debacles of the decade and really took to task a lot of technology. For those of you unaware of, of Audrey's work, uh, I guess she would be uh, probably best described as the uh, 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 maintaining the warning about when technology fails. And I, I don't really quite get what her advocacy is of, of, of what she would prefer. Obviously, I agree with her on, on, on a lot of the cases that a lot of oversold and over, uh, hype technology has done us almost no good. In a lot of cases, introduced a lot of risk into the, this part of the educational industry. But I want to, uh, for a moment, juxtaposition that against another article from a, another prominent voice in the ed techosphere. Uh, this is Dean Chersky, who's been around for three decades now in kind of the ed tech world. And he released an interesting blog post uh, earlier this week called, I don't think I'm an ed tech guy anymore. And talked through this notion that uh, he's not an ed tech guy. He's an education guy now. And so one of the things I think we need to spend some time reflecting on broadly in education is that a lot of things are disappointments when they're introduced. A lot of innovations that mm -hmm. promise to change everything haven't changed everything. And the one I know a lot about because I've done a lot of, of, of academic research on it is the so-called invention of MOOCs, the multi or massive open online courses that were a huge rage, um, you know, nine, ten years ago, at the beginning of the 2010s, that were going to democratize education and bring it to the masses and decrease the cost of college. And I thought at the time that, that the model didn't have enough to do that. It couldn't replace formal academic structures that tend to dominate uh, uh, our, our uh, upper secondary and higher education, not just in the United States and around the world, but um, that they wouldn't replace college, which is a constant theme of X, Y, and Z is going to re replace college, and X, Y, and Z is going to make college less valuable, and yet there's still extraordinary data that you're better off getting a college education than if you aren't. So ignoring that rabbit hole for a second, I think one of the things that I want to say is as you're examining these articles and as you're reflecting on what the last 10 years or 20 years of ed tech has done, I still think we have to remember that taking Dean's point into account that we it's got to be about the education first, right? Education technology, if it's not about tech in the classroom, it's about good teaching in the classroom. If you can use technology to augment that, if you can use technology to enhance that, in some cases, if you can use technology to replace that, I think that's that's the goal. We have to be able to say it's the education first. And in fact, I find myself talking a lot about my own conference presentations used to be a lot more like, here's how you do X and here's how you do Y and here's 
how you use tool Z. Whereas now I want to talk a little bit more with teachers and administrators and those interested in our industry about how you should be approaching this to make sure that you're using the maximum impact for student learning in a classroom. Sometimes that means more technology. Sometimes that means less. Sometimes that means taking technology that we've come to trust and questioning the assumptions uh, and, and looking at it differently, always putting that student learning lens on. So, you know, there's a lot of talk in, in the Hack Education article about, you know, the, the, uh, overpromising of Silicon Valley and all the initiatives that gone into, to initiatives, many of which were aimed at revolutionizing the education world. But to be honest, I think in a lot of those cases, those efforts failed not because there wasn't enough money available, not because technology itself is suspect, it is because education wasn't the priority. We didn't put into uh, the, the priority position the, the lens of student learning, and that's got to always be first. So, I, you know, I could spend the next hour talking about that. I don't want to do that, partly because I know West has a lot of thoughts about this as well. But one of the things that I think is important is that as we are looking, um, you know, in, in, in the coming months, years, decades, that this is an opportunity for us. We are at a crossroads, I think, about picking tech. It's not about banning or even going all in. It's about finding which middle ground best serves student learning. I do have a few thoughts about that. I, I want to mention, though, we've, we've had a, a few live viewers. We've got three now. We've been up to five. If you're tuning in either on YouTube Live or on Facebook Live, uh, if you want to put any questions or comments or just shout outs into the chat, uh, we are both able to see those here in our lovely StreamYard interface, and uh, we can reply to those or give those voice if you <clears throat> want to contribute to our conversation here. Um, I think, you know, I have a lot of respect for Audrey Waters. However, I'll also say she is a much more bitter person, I think, perhaps than, than I am as I look at a lot of these topics. I think this is a, I didn't get through this whole article, right? There are literally a hundred different things in here that she calls debacles of the decade. Um, <clears throat> but the way I see this being very helpful, I mean, this is, this is not a, not a who's who list, but, you know, kind of a like background stuff. Like these are all things that if you are involved in educational technology and, and you could arguably say, you know, in, in education today, because digital technology plays an increasingly important role in multiple aspects of, of learning. Uh, these are things that are important to know about. And <clears throat> some of these are lessons to, to learn, you know, to be aware of what happened there and, and maybe what could be avoided. Um, but there's a lot of things that are really awesome and are good, I, I think, have tremendous power and tremendous benefit. And so, you know, Audrey is casting a lot of these things, you know, for instance, like flipped learning as just a debacle and, you know, a crock. And as you say, I think part of that is because of the language in which sometimes it's spun in popular media, mainstream media, but also the ed tech, you know, blogosphere and whatever you want to call, you know, those of us out on the social media platform sharing, um, you know, talking about a learning revolution and things like that. Oh gosh, it didn't, you know, completely change everything, but goodness gracious, I've been reflecting on this a little bit. Um, th there was an article here over the break that I think, uh, Kim Case shared 
uh, it was about Australia. This was from the summer, but this was, you know, families lamenting the expense of laptops and just how, you know, they weren't worth it and, you know, doing away with iPads or, or thing, you know, things like that with one-to-one learning. I mean, there are so many ways that, uh, digital learning and the sharing of ideas, you know, absolutely is transformative in our society today in terms of the way right. news happens in, in terms of politics, uh, and then the impact on economics. But also, uh, I mean, you know, all of us just experienced and are, or, you know, might still be, if you haven't gone back to school yet, I'm guessing most of us haven't, right? It is, you know, January the 1st, <clears throat> the most connected holiday you've ever had, right? I mean, the ability to simultaneously, if you're on Facebook and, and maybe other platforms, but for me, it's mostly, you know, via Facebook, uh, to be more connected to family and friends and, you know, having conversations with people that I wouldn't be having otherwise, you know, getting glimpses. And we can talk about how, you know, the fear of missing out culture and the way in which, you know, social media challenges identity and it causes people sometimes to project things that is more of an aspirational and even fake identity versus the real identity, yada, yada, yada. I mean, we can be, we can be bitter and upset about it, but I think we also need to recognize there are really powerful and positive ways in which this, you know, transforms our lives. And so while there's, you know, like I said, this list from Audrey is really a great one in terms of, are you aware of these things? I mean, one of the things she talked about, I didn't know that David Wiley, this whole lawsuit, you know, between Pearson and, and the way that Follett acquired this, but, you know, David with his, um, I didn't realize that he had his own uh, platform called Lumen Learning and he's archived all this. I mean, there's, there's a lot of follow-ups with links to, you know, different yeah, stories. More research. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of commentary I can give to different ones. I'll just a couple I'll say is, you know, Ning, this is huge. We're about to, um, you know, actually this month, now that it's January, um, to cease operations as a 501c3 nonprofit for story chasers that, you know, we've been uh, in operation there, I think, since 2009. So it's been about 10 years. And we fought, fell into that trap, as so many people did, of putting content into a paid platform, Ning, and then having that content not readily, not readily grabbable, uh, not readily trans, uh, you know, mobile, I guess, in terms of right. portable. That's the word is, is data portability. And so anyway, um, there's lots of, of lessons learned with, within all of this, but there's one more I'll, I'll comment on. Um, and then, I'll, uh, well, we can go on to something else, but, uh, oh, and thanks for the shout out, by the way, for Dean's article. I hadn't seen that yet. Um, and I think that is, that's a great thing to, you know, give voice to and to recognize. And of course, I'm on that same page that, you know, it's about the learning. It always has been about the learning, by the way. Uh, many of us, you know, get sometimes distracted, but enamored, you know, with, with flashy lights and, and buttons and things. Um, but in part, it's because these tools allow us to do things we either couldn't do before or we weren't able to do at scale in the ways that we can do them, you know, now. But that 3D printing article, you know, gives you the idea. It's just no freaking big deal, right? It's just all hoopla. And this is number 93 on Audrey's list. <clears throat> Look, I was just at Tinker Air Force Base yesterday with our, our son. A couple of months ago, we had a chance to take about 12 people from our school there. Um, it's about a $2.3 billion operation to um, be taking care of every jet engine in the inventory of the Air Force. So that right here in Oklahoma City, all of the jet engines, not the rocket engines, those are at Hill Air Force Base in Utah. But there's three different uh, what they're called air logistics centers. And so anyway, uh, Alexander's graduating, you know, in May is a mechanical engineer and, you know, 
know, I, we, I'm interested in, in, you know, connecting him to the possibilities that are there. I mean, one of the things that their, their chief engineer said uh, during our tour, and, and I think he had said this before, is that 3D printing has been a fundamental game changer for them in terms of engineering because before 3D printing, the majority of engineers would design things in 2D for a 3D world. Now with um, 3D, you know, software, SolidWorks, you know, we, we use Tinkercad as a lower level, but, you know, Alexander, I think SolidWorks has been what he's used in his engineering program at the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, that's what they're using there. And so engineers are doing far more design in 3D for the 3D world. And, you know, it's, it's a game changer. I mean, we were, we were there, um, a couple months ago and there was a, they have a million and a half dollar machine that takes powdered metal. And I, sometime on a show, cause I don't think I, I put it somewhere in the house. I got a discarded, you know, piece of metal that they had, had created. They can fabricate, you know, not today, any kind of metal and jet engines, by the way, are pretty, you know, demanding. And so it's not the case where they can fabricate any kind of, of metal today that they want, but it is phenomenal. It's huge. And so, you know, simply saying, Hey, this is all a crock. It's not a game changer at all. Um, is, is false, right? In terms of the impact it's having on society today, not, you know, in the years in the future. It depends where you are, right? And if you happen to be supporting airframes that are going to be flying literally for a hundred years, I mean, that's what the, the KC 135 tanker and some of these airframes are. I mean, they were, it was started in the sixties, but anyway, it's, uh, it's interesting to see, you know, not just in the classroom, but in the world outside the classroom, um, you know, how are these things um, being utilized? And then, you know, that's, that's, of course, the impact of talking about this stuff, right? We'll talk about an article and a new technology. Well, what impact does that have? And some of that might be that we need our students to be introduced to that, to have those kinds of skills. And so anyway, I think that's a great article to look at. I do like those summative, you know, looking at, at the year and reflection kind of things. Uh, Dr. Neifer, would you be writing some kind of decade <laughs> in reflection? Uh, I will not. Well, in part because that I, I, I can imagine the extraordinary research that, that she went through to, to write that monumental. Oh, absolutely. Article. And the links, the links. It, are yeah, incredible. absolutely. Well, and the thing that, that you should be very aware of, and, and this is a part that I, I very much agree with. We, we need to stop looking for someone to come in and save schools with tech because that's not really what, what the problem is, right? Like it's, it's there. I think there are vast issues that we need to address broadly in, in public schools in the United States. But to claim the technology is in any way the answer there, it's part of the reason why that, you know, uh, uh, an organization like mine is sometimes challenging because people want distance learning to be the answer to a lot of different problems that it really can't be the answer to. And the reality is, is we don't need um, you know, we need a lot of things uh, to, to help uh, uh, move forward the conversation about how to best educate students. And um, we'll never get to an answer. In fact, I don't think that there will be an answer to that because I think our culture demands different things out of schools at different times. And obviously what has happened in schools broadly in the last 50 years has been impacted the way our culture approaches schools. But I think avoiding Messiah mentality in regards to technology, um, the notion that it's clear that a lot of um, a lot of promises have been broken. And I think also people really want 
it to be edu- or easier to educate kids. And it's not. It's, it's a difficult, complex, messy business because it's a people business, right? And we don't get all the, the same kids that come into our classroom. They're not widgets. They're, they're human beings in a context. And, um, in the same way too, that technology has promised to make personalization better. Uh, there's a lot of research that says that there is no benefit, no clearly identified benefit to personalization as the way it's described in, in, in 2020. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make education more personal. I think that's a big difference between the two. And one of the ways we might do that is with more resources for schools. So that I think if we had more opportunities for students, if we could work with them, not necessarily to give them a variety of choices, but to find the, the right environment for them in the context of the institutions which we built, I think that's a really important part of this conversation. Yeah. And, and let's look at the instructional strategies, right? Because yeah. technology can be an instructional, it can be utilized in different instructional strategies. My wife went to Harvard with half of the teachers at our lower school this summer, and Project Zero is focused now a lot on making thinking visible, right? There are so many wonderful ways that tech can do that uh, and that we, you know, get to bring content in and then give students opportunities to communicate in different ways. So, Absolutely. all right. Well, I'd like to jump down to a security topic. So, uh, yeah, here we're, uh, 22 minutes into the show and we've covered two articles, folks. That's, that's all right. We, you know, you're getting more than you're paying for here with the show. So I, I don't think we're going to have lots of complaints. Although I, I realize looking at these links, we could be doing a three hour show and not a one hour. Um, so anyway, security. Talked about this other show. I actually have one of these now in my possession. This is the YubiKey 5CI, which is USB-C and a lightning uh, connector here. This is a physical key. Uh, one of the things I have been wading through and I'm not done with yet is you can go through your, your uh, Google Chrome password checkup and you, you can do that with the other password managers. It is just so important today <clears throat> that we use very long, complex passwords that are unique to every single website um, and that when we can, we turn on two-factor authentication, which means you need to have something else in your physical possession to authenticate on a new device. And so, you know, phones and smartphones, uh, you know, SMS uh, is, a, is a technology that will let you verify that, but uh, that is potentially hackable. So, on the security note, uh, I think you had actually dropped a couple articles related to this. Um, the one I want to pick up is from the New York Post on December 29th. Man sues ring after creep hacked device taunted kids. And <clears throat> this article goes on to explain how, you know, the, the lawsuit here is blaming uh, Amazon for what they said was, Hey, you got hacked and this, you know, creepy guy talked to my kids and it happened a couple times, like one time in someone's bedroom and he claimed to be Santa is very creepy. And then another one, they had like a camera up above their basketball rim. And I think the, the hacker was talking to, you know, kids playing basketball. But what the article says that they determined was no breach. It was password reuse. And so this is huge. This is one of the most important things all of us can put on our list of New Year's resolutions is to not just start today using secure passwords, but to go back into your accounts, especially anything that has a credit card or anything to do with finance. You probably have that one special password that you've used since forever, you know, on so many different sites. And that's what, you know, the password checker on Google Chrome, as well 
is, you know, last pass and one password. They call them different things, but they'll go in and check all your saved passwords against known breaches. And so this article, and I've seen some others as well, point to the fact, oh, the other one was when Disney Plus came out. I think we did this on the show a few weeks ago. <clears throat> there were a number of people who had their Disney Plus accounts hacked. Oh my gosh, Disney Plus got hacked. No, they didn't. People's Username and password has been breached elsewhere by Equifax or Target or whatever. And so hackers go on the dark web. They get your email address and that password and they go, Oh, ooh, I wonder if this person signed up for Disney plus. Oh, look, they have. And then they have access to your account and they control it. So I really think, uh, you know, being safe, password security and talking about multi-factor authentication. And uh, I'm trying to, I think, kind of live into the future because I think this is where we're all going. We're going to biometrics, right? But short of being able to use a biometric device on, you know, all the systems that we have to log into, having some kind of a physical security key is is really, you know, where we're headed and where those folks who are taking security the most seriously, that that's where they're living today. And so I have not yet turned off my SMS and all my other ways of logging in uh, and authenticating to my Google account. Um, but what I've done is I've printed out my codes. I've printed several copies of those. I'm saving those in safe places because if I lose this key, if it gets stolen, you know, I'm going to need to get access to my account. How can I do that without the key? And so anyway, I'm going to live with this for a few weeks, but then that is my plan and my encouragement to all of you is at a bare minimum, you need to be running these security password check programs and then going in to change, especially, like I said, any kind of account that has any sort of, um, uh, you know, credit card or, or, you know, money associated with it. And what we've got to protect the most are our email accounts and, and sort of the, the accounts that are keys to the kingdom of other things, right? Because once someone has compromised your email account, you know, then it's, it's sort of like they have a master key to go into, you know, almost anything. It could be your bank or, or whatever. And so anyway, those were good. You added a couple other articles. I think that were similar was, was, were those also on that same, um, ring hack or were those some other things? It is. Um, I, the, 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 I did want to mention and, and I'm glad you noted this is part of your article with the ring issue is that I, I, when I read the original article, I was just a little confused about part of the problem here is that it's the balance between security and convenience. And I imagine one of the reasons why Amazon doesn't force you to use two factor authentication is because it's, it's, it's difficult to maintain and set up if you're not already prone to do that. And, and, and Wes and I have talked offline before about how we've been both working towards a much more secure system for our personal and school stuff. But that's taken some time and effort, extraordinary time and effort. And while, like, I, I, I do think that if you're going to use a ring doorbell and you're going to use that technology, especially that's going to have a camera inside your home that's got a speaker on it, you should absolutely use two factor authentication. I couldn't agree more with that notion. But my guess is, is that if Amazon compelled that of end users, then the article would be that Amazon is locking, unnecessarily locking down a technology uh, that could be useful for security, right? Because, uh, you know, if you just use a different username and password for every website, then everything would be great. And that's also true. But we have to be realistic that we are not taking seriously or we're not taking security seriously enough 
broadly as computer users, right? They're uh, uh, just at schools alone, hundreds of, of, of hacks a year that, that are related to sloppy security practices. And that's a real issue and problem. But I don't think that compelling everyone to immediately adopt the industry standard is going to get us there. We need to instead be pushing our friends and neighbors. We need to be talking to our students about this. We need to be talking to our colleagues about this. We need to be talking to our parents about this. We need to push this along until we come up with better, more secure ways to lock this information down. Well, and it depends upon your role, right? I agree with yeah. you. you know, I think the, the latest studies, which are a year or so old, you know, we're saying only something like 10% of Gmail users, you know, globally are, are, are using two factor authentication. So <clears throat> using any kind of two factor, even with SMS, uh, you know, that is going to be sort of keeping you safer than, than most of the other folks out there. Um, but one of the things I'm, you know, very proud of and, and happy about as I was the technology director at our school for four years was requiring every single person who has a G Suite email account to use two-factor authentication. And that was something we took a year to roll out and we did, you know, training and one-on-ones with people. And it wasn't something we just, you know, flipped a switch. Uh, but, you know, I, I actually have had a chance to talk with our church and be involved in <clears throat> the um, the transition to a new information system to handle all constituent data and financial system and things like that. I'm, I'm just part of that team. But one of the things that I just, you know, sent an email before the holidays uh, about was to say, hey, I think that we need to transition definitely everyone in the business office who is touching money into two factor. And then I would suggest and I'm going to have this conversation we have a plan where we're going to require everybody because as a business, you know, that's a little different than saying, hey, this is my house. This is my ring doorbell. This is, you know, whatever uh, consumer, you know, IOT. Um, and so I would just encourage and exhort those who may be listening that have a leadership role in your school or whatever organization. And, and again, this is like who's going to take this message to the organizations that you are a part of, right? We don't have these regular little, hey, learn about security, you know, this week kind of sessions in, you know, every organization. And, and, and you know, even in ours, I don't think, you know, even though we have like semi-annual meetings and a lot of times, our head of school would let me, you know, say some words and I'd talk about security uh, as one of my talking points. I, I don't think we do it enough. So anyway, I want to encourage folks, if you're not already requiring everyone in your school organization to use two-factor authentication, yeah, guess what? It's a pain. But this is the reality that, you know, simply using your email address, which is generally publicly accessible. And so you're only having that password. That's it. That's the only thing. Your tendency is to use a password that is number one, repeated and number two, relatively easy to type in. It's just a, I think we could probably have some really good visual metaphorical descriptions of, you know, sort of like, you know, where you're, 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 you're out there in the, in the jungle, you know, with all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, threats that are out there from from snakes to tigers to all kinds of things that could be getting you. And, you know, if you're just sitting in your hammock without a net or any other kind of protection around you, you're kind of crazy, right? You need to be protected with with more layers of, of security. And that is the metaphor that most people use to talk about security. They'll talk about layers of security and layers of protection because there's not going to be a single silver bullet that's going to protect you. And so you're going to want to do multiple things. And I think as we move further along in the digital world, you know, credentials 
those keys, all these, all these things. I, I love my Apple universe, right? I love my, <clears throat> now that I'm back to the iPhone seven, it's touch ID, but you know, the, when I was on the 11 pro, the uh, facial recognition, even though there's, there's creepy sides to that, man, I gotta tell you, it's just awesome. Even in the dark, just look at your device and Hey, it recognizes it's me and you know, we're off to the races, but um, the, those technologies are not going to be ubiquitous across all, you know, enterprise platforms and things like that. So, we're going to need to look at other ways of doing that. And that may not be the sexiest and most exciting, you know, type of ed tech we can talk about, but it certainly is one that gets to the heart of every single, you know, person's life because none of us want to be the victim of identity theft and none of us want to, you know, have to, um, you know, take the sometimes years it can take to recover from a security breach where someone has, uh, you know, gotten into your life and, and really messed with it. Right. All right. Well, what else should we talk about now that we're uh, halfway through our show? Yeah, sure. Let me uh, let me just point out one other article. It was an article from today's USA Today. Uh, the reason why I mention it is because it, it talks about don't fall for this latest uh, prank or trickster fraud, blah, 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 blah. The reason why I liked it is because I am starting to see, like usually it's pretty obvious to me uh, uh, based on you know, the amount of email that I review. And, and oftentimes a teacher will forward to me an email that they question it could be a phishing attack. I've seen a lot of phishing emails. And there's usually a glaring issue, right? Like something that should be capitalized, it's not, something that's misspelled, something that's the, the British or Australian spelling instead of the American spelling is usually a tip-off uh, that it's it's not correct, or it looks different than other official emails like from the Google platform. But uh, that particular article had some screenshots of what appeared to be a pretty, uh, looked like a pretty legitimate email, and I think I would have been fooled by that. So definitely keep an eye out. You stay safe out there, kids. Absolutely. All right. Okay, hey, let, let, let me do a fun one. Well, fun. It's kind of weird, but uh, this is this is under uh, the large title "Drone Space Surveillance," um, and this is from Stars and Stripes Magazine, which I'm sure every one of our listeners is, you know, tuning into daily. Uh, but it, I mean, it's a legit, you know, legit source, which of course is an issue we always have on the show as we do in our lives. Like who says this? What, what is this source? <clears throat> the headline is weird and concerning mystery drone sightings continue in Colorado in Nebraska, into Nebraska. Um, and I also put a link and I'll include this in the show notes to one of the most wonderful features of Google news, which is this little colored icon uh, that stands for full coverage. Because when you take a particular article, it's good to get a spectrum of coverage, right? It's not just Fox News, CNN, but, you know, what are these other different, you know, news entities, you know, doing to talk about? And that'll update. So actually, I'm going to tap on that and choose to open that here in my little iPad uh, extra screen I'm using. Uh, oh, inter that's interesting. Huh. That link. I don't know if it's just because that's on the iPad or if that link had actually expired. So maybe I'll have to. Uh, have to check that link again. Um, what it should show me is a variety of different articles that are about that particular topic. Uh, this is totally fascinating. Drones that have a pretty large wingspan, I think it says up to six feet uh, in size, are you know being sighted out in these areas of uh, of uh, you know eastern Colorado um, and uh, I guess going into Nebraska. And they apparently fly at night and they're flying. They, they, they might be drug traffickers, they say. Uh, I'm reminded of things. There were these things called the Lubbock lights that were, you know, 
weird sightings. There was the Marfa lights and these other, other things that were, you know, touted to be UFOs or black helicopters or, you know, what's, what's going on out here in the, the, you know, the, the flat, um, high plains of, of Texas when I was living, you know, out in Lubbock or even before that, you know, my granddad, uh, or my mom's side was real interested in that kind of stuff. Um, they're apparently not doing anything illegal. And in the article, they encourage folks not to shoot them down because if you shoot down one of these drones with your shotgun, you know, it's possible that it's going to start a fire and, you know, that's going to, uh, be even more problematic. But, uh, we, we have a Costco here in Oklahoma City and we are Costco members. <clears throat> and so I noticed that for the holidays, you know, they had an off the shelf drone that was like 50 bucks. It's a quadcopter, um, that has, you know, an HD camera on it and it's, it's a fly by wire deal. But, um, you know, highly hackable, I'm sure our, um, media, uh, or sorry, our makerspace, uh, teacher had, had ordered some $12, you know, uh, remote control cars from China. Um, he had, he was hacking those before the holiday to put the circuit playground on so that, uh, they could be programmed by kids to, you know, follow a course or whatever. And so anyway, who's running these drones? What are they doing? Drones are going to play an increasing role in our society. I think I included probably a, a geek of the week or geek of the week with this, like Air Force Academy, Air Force Army weekend. Did I, did I show that? Do you remember me mentioning that where they had like 500 drones that did a light show? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we just had New Year's Eve. There were drone, there have been drone light shows at I think the Chinese Olympics and some other, you know, kinds of things. So we're going to see, um, you know, consumer public event, you know, kinds of uses for drones. But I thought that was pretty interesting and, you know, uh, a mystery where, where are these drones coming from? Uh, that'll be something to kind of, catch up on. And I guess the, you know, connection there is that we need our kids to be developing coding skills, right? There's debates about whether it's a foreign language. You know, I speak Spanish relatively well, uh, certainly not a native uh, speaker, but, um, you know, it's different. I do not think learning to code and program is exactly the same and has all the same benefits and that we should, you know, let's just let people take Python instead of taking, you know, French, Spanish, German, or whatever. But I do think that, you know, it's, it needs to become a requirement. It needs to become an essential part of what everyone does. Everyone learns to work with data. Everyone learns to work with code. We don't fear those things and we don't relegate that to just, you know, a few kids over in the corner who, you know, do that on their own for fun. This needs to be a mainstream kind of activity. And as we see things like this, you know, happening with drones and, and, and whatnot, um, Anyway, I'm reminded of that. So are you involved in hacking drones and creating drone light shows for the, your, your neighbors there in Missoula? Uh, over the well, holidays? I did not. Uh, my father-in-law uh, plays around with a drone and, and, and likes that a lot. Uh, the other coverage this week that also impacts this is the FAA has announced that they will be much more aggressively regulating drones. And drones of a certain size, which my understanding was relatively small, was the, the bottom end of what they would be. Um, regulating would be forced to have a unique ID number and then also means of identifying or registering, identifying the drones. And there have been a couple efforts to register drones um, by the FAA, many of which had exempted uh, uh, the casual user of the drone, but things like the situation that, that I hadn't heard that before today. That's an extraordinary thing that's going on in Colorado, but you know, there've been a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people that, that aren't 
thinking through the consequences of things, do things with drones that that really are a, a question of safety. And, you know, I kind of think about the Back to the Future 2 future where there's flying cars everywhere and they had kind of flying flying um, highways there. Well, I think the more likely scenario is we're going to have flying highways, but they're going to be made up of um, drones that, you know, will be delivering things and um, as, as uh, uh like delivery services become more individualized, I have no doubt they will become an important part of our transportation infrastructure. Well, as I said, our son's, you know, applying for jobs now and, uh, our, our same makerspace, uh, teacher, shout out to Eric Sappington, uh, was telling me about an article, which I don't have in the, in the notes here, but UPS is, is looking to hire folks that can code drones because, you know, yep. the delivery of blood plasma and medicine and things right. like that, uh, that, that's a game changer, right? Being able to get these things that are needed by medical professionals you know, in their hands to save people's lives. Um, on a related note that is kind of weird too, but it's, this is a sign of the times. Uh, this is December 20th, the South China Morning Post, which again, this is not, you know, Joe Schmo's garage blog. Uh, the headline is China flight systems jammed by pig farms, African swine fever defenses. And so what was happening here is criminal gangs in China were spreading uh, infectious diseases so that they could boost the price of pigs. And they had some farmers using unauthorized e equipment, which was jamming these drone signals so that they wouldn't come and land and infect their pigs. And so this is actually affecting planes. We're talking commercial flying aircraft, you know, that were flying overhead. And so they detected them and were able to shut this down. Um, but man, that's, that's a wild, you know, sign of the times kind of thing too, where people are trying to be defensive and protect themselves. And, you know, that has an impact on, uh, you know, I don't know if those were international flights, they were probably domestic flights or whatever. They're, you know, controlled airspace, uh, commercial, commercial flights. So uh, the last thing I'll do quick on this one, and maybe we want to, if we want to get through a few more, just kind of do some quick hits. Uh, this is under the same heading, but this is because of surveillance. This was Washington Post on Christmas Eve, December 24th. This is crazy. Colleges are turning students' phones into surveillance machines, tracking the locations uh, of hundreds of thousands. This is crazy. So evidently this started off looking at how coaches, you know, need to make sure their students are going to class. And so a company has been formed, which is called Spotter EDU. And I did tweet a bit of a snarky, you know, tweet about, you know, calling all educational authoritarians. If you'd love to, you know, raise the stakes of your surveillance powers even more, you know, contact Spotter EDU because they can gather thousands. I think this says something like, 6,000 data points per day, uh, and it doesn't use GPS. It's using, um, like, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, and there are these beacons. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's crazy. It reminds me, I think, of an article we might have mentioned where, you know, some helicopter parents are using this Life360 app to make sure they're, you know, college you know, children, I think some of them are daughters. I don't know if they all are, but anyway, their college children don't leave campus, you know, and if they see them leaving campus, you know, then they tell them, Hey, you, you got to stay on campus. I'm going to, you know, some of them threatened, you know, not supporting their college education. If, if they're not going to, you know, stay on campus where they're supposed to just create, you know, these are outliers. Of course, I think that is particularly, I hope, um, but this is a, this is a company that's gone mainstream and, you know, at the university level, um, you know, 
kids are showing up in record numbers because, you know, it's not just a clicker. At, at Texas Tech, we had stories of, of teachers who were using these clickers for kids to check in uh, to make sure they were in class and then they would answer questions. And so some kids would show up with like six clickers because, you know, their friends were going to be there, but they were going to get their kids, you know, friends to have the credit. I mean, this makes me think, hey, if I'm going to this school, maybe I'm going to opt out of having a smartphone, right? Oh, sorry, I don't have a smartphone. I guess you can't. Right. Track me. So any thoughts you have, Jason, or perhaps were you an early investor in spotter edu? I may be touching some <laughs> sensitive, <laughs> sensitive topics here. No. And I, I, I think that there, I mean, there, it, it goes back to this idea that we talked about at the top of the hour that, that there is a bit of a crossroads. We have to determine that there's no doubt that you could make a, I, I'm not saying it's a persuasive case, but you can make a case for having all of this data because it leads to student success, right? If students aren't showing up for class, it's hard for them to be successful. And no, it doesn't matter what the target is. Student athlete, regular student body, the website of, of that butter tool um, seem to, to suggest that that, that uh, special events and student, the whole student body could also be targets of this technology. But at a certain point, like there's, there's certainly diminishing returns and also, I mean, I skipped a couple classes in college and I turned out okay, right? Like I would agree that, 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 uh, 100% attendance is better than, than 50% attendance or 25% attendance. But, you know, the use, uh, it seems like that there's a lot of peril in what this data can be used for, right? And I'll give you another example of this. There's a longstanding tension between the fact that we send 18 year olds, functional adults, uh, according to the United States law to college. And in a lot of cases, parents are paying for that. And yet as adults, there is no right to educational data at the university environment, right? That there's a, a FERPA issue that prevents uh, 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 adults from having their parents have access to their educational records includes their grades, etc. And I do think there's a risk at some point with all this data that that's going to start to complicate those walls that have been longstanding firewalls between what parents can access and what they can't. A good argument, or, or at least a, an, an argument, can be made that you know these things lead to student success. But what is the cost in in, in the surveillance state? And the term you like to use, a West surveillance capitalism, is real. And you know, making money off of that is obviously a huge part of this as well. And you are probably tracked in ways that even if you're not on campus, low energy Bluetooth. Part of the point of that technology is to sniff around for Bluetooth devices, grab its hardware address, it's unique hardware address, and then use that as a means of, of tracking where that phone goes next. If you're in a massive department store that uses a low energy Bluetooth tracking, they know how long you spent in housewares versus uh, uh, a men's clothing or how much time you spent uh, at the restaurant at the end of the day. And that's commercially usable data. So whether we want to turn our students into that kind of a, you know, I guess McNugget of data, that's fine. But uh, there's implications to that, right? And it's not as simple as, you know, the data is useful for identifying students at risk. Reminds me about filtering, right? I think that uh, IT departments in schools and other organizations have been given incredible powers to control the content uh, which folks have access to. I will not mention names, but I shared a presentation in the last, you know, few months in a school district where, uh, oh shoot, we can't, you know, can't get to this website. I can't show you this, um, you know, and, and 
at our school where I've been the technology director, we're very much more open. You know, I, I haven't been living in that kind of an oppressive, uh, I would say, uh, um, you know, I don't know. I haven't had these words roll off my tongue lately, but you know, that it's the, the, the call for balance filtering, you know, draconian filtering yeah. uh, would be what that might be uh, thought of. And so anyway, um, it, it's similar to that, you know, just because you have all these powers doesn't mean you should use all those powers. And I think in the surveillance, you know, world, we're, we're seeing that for sure where, you know, cameras are, are, uh, you know, becoming more ubiquitous and especially as we, you know, hook up algorithms in the cloud to these sorts of things and allow analysis and things like that to happen. Uh, there are temptations and, and folks that are involved in security 24 seven, you know, may be tempted to want to do things like I've seen some products that would let us say, Oh, you know, show me all the white Jeeps that drove on our campus, you know, yesterday or within this window of time. Um, but you know, the degree to which facial recognition and all that, we, we should not become what China is today and where China is going today with their, their, their use of, uh, I would say, oppressive surveillance technology. Um, so where to next, sir? Well, uh, it is January 1st, uh, the day of this recording. So, Wes, I'd like to wish you an extraordinary happy, happy public domain day. Boingo noted on in its, in its Monday edition that uh, January 1st, 2020 means that everything from 1924 and older is now officially in the public domain. And there are a lot of very prominent media properties that happen to be part of that. Uh, the song Rhapsody in Blue is now in the public domain, which means that uh, no licensing is required to utilize that song in whole or in bits. This cheap music, at least not the recordings in a lot of cases would still be uh, very, 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 very much uh, copyrighted. Um, songs like uh, Lazy by Irving Berlin, uh, Santa Claus Blues, which I don't really have the Santa Claus Blues, but in case you do, that's there. And a number of prominent books and movies are also now included uh, in that list. And one of the things, and we've talked about it a little bit here, that uh, Congress has really, really extended the protections uh, for, for creators uh, for copyright. And now the stuff that's going into play now is going to start to get a little more complicated as we're getting into more modern day properties. But lots of great stuff is going in the public domain, which means it can be used in a license-free way. And I think that's a very positive thing. This is under our media literacy uh, headline. Did I talk about that Which Face is Real um, site where you can compare which one was created by AI and which one wasn't? I'm thinking I might not have since I put it in the show notes for tonight. No, that sounds uh, oh, okay. This, this is crazy. So this the, there's a Verge article that goes back to February 15th. Uh, this person does not exist.com uses AI to generate endless fake faces. And then I think not our December 18th show, because that was our, you know, product and, and gift show. But I'm going to go back to December 11th and try to look under, huh? No, maybe I did not. Uh, there's another article that I need to drop in. Basically, um, folks, well, okay, this is a website which you can use. I did a media literacy lesson before the break on this, and, and I think I'm going to do a, a more expanded version uh, where students are going to be creating some things. Uh, they've taken this website, whichfaceisreal.com. And so there are uh, folks, you know, using artificial intelligence to be able to, um, you know, create deep fakes. We've talked about that on the show where somebody, especially like a public figure that has a lot of video, they can make them say just about anything they want. But uh, this website, this person does not exist.com actually creates photographs of folks who have never existed before. And they do that by 
uh, I guess, taking, you know, elements of different faces and things like that, but they look so real. And so whichfacesreal.com, you know, is, is a head-to-head comparison. And there's different ways you can look for the patterns, like where the eyes are. They're always looking forward. So if you've got reflections in glasses or my kids were enjoying, you know, trying to do some pattern analysis of like, okay, so how, how do we tell, you know, which one is fake? Um, but, but these are, are being utilized now for disinformation campaigns, for Facebook profiles, you know, folks that, yes, imagine this, you know, actually live in Russia uh, and, and entities and groups that are running these kinds of pages. And a lot of these are, you know, right-leaning, uh, right-wing kinds of websites. Uh, they're not going to unsplash.com, getting pictures of real people, but then, you know, repurposing them. <clears throat> You've probably heard people talk about catfishing before. Catfishing is a term where photographs of, of you or someone else are taken and then shown to an unwitting person, uh, giving them the idea that, oh, look at me, look at my life. And, you know, they're, they're trying, it's a scam. They're trying to get money from this person. Anyway, this is now happening as far as uh, fake, you know, images. <coughs> where there's an an endless supply because literally when you click the refresh button on this person does not exist.com that person will not exist again because they have been created by this this algorithm and you can go to the bottom right corner of the website and get a little more information and links about how it was created but the the verge article in february from february 15th which i've got linked there uh was announcing this and and so what i need to uh, oh, I guess I do. I've got it. Okay, yeah. So the, the follow-up article is December 12th, and this is from Lead Stories, and the title is Fake Faces, People Who Do Not Exist Invade Facebook to Influence the 2020 Elections, Part 1. And so, yes, there are folks who are, have never existed. Their faces were created by AI algorithms. Uh, mysteriously, they are you know, leading 10 or 20 different uh, right-wing groups and communities on Facebook, uh, and, and these folks are, you know, they're not real. They're being operated by other, you know, entities. And in some cases, these are extremely complex and sophisticated initiatives that are trying to build followerships and, ta- you know, touch, pull the, pull the levers and push the buttons of folks a lot of times with emotion and the ways in which people want to, you know, get you to respond, to like and to share. And, and they're doing this. This is, this is the campaign, folks. This is the, the new political campaign of 2020 are entities and groups that are building followings on Facebook primarily, but on other platforms as well. Uh, so that they can then slip in the, you know, negative, uh, ad, the, you know, w- whatever. Some of these are also sharing a variety of authentic information as well as disinformation. And so I guess I'll, I'll do a shout out lastly to a really great article that's kind of an end of year, but it's by Mike Caulfield, who's at Holden on Twitter. I've mentioned him before. He has the SIFT, um, you know, protocol or framework for media literacy in his article from First Draft News. It says year in review, abnormal things seem business as usual. So in addition to security being a really important topic to, to talk with folks, not just in the ed tech world, but just in our regular face to face life, talking to people about, well, who shared that? Do you know what group that is? We really need to avoid number one, being emotionally manipulated because, oh man, that makes me upset. I'm going to share that. I'm going to like that. And then also, you know, giving fuel to, in some cases, these are 
not United States groups. These are Russian groups. These are Chinese groups. These are groups that really want to po further polarize and harm our democracy, and they're using these kinds of technologies. So that would be a great activity as you head back to school to share with teachers, share with students, whichfacesreal.com, get a conversation going about the ways in which artificial intelligence is being utilized um, and, and being weaponized <clears throat> to try to spread disinformation and propaganda and uh, to trick people so that we'll uh, – you know, share a message that somebody wants to have boosted out there in media world. Sorry to be a downer there. That's the Debbie Downer. <laughs> Quite all right. Um, let's see. Well, I was just going to say, hey, well, here's some more hacked articles. Let's not maybe do those either. Um, I actually I think I'm out of articles that I've thrown in here, but um, the robocall article is positive. We could do that one. The oh yeah, that's just today, right? As well, no. The, well, maybe there was a new one. This was from December nineteenth. Senate passes new yeah. limits on robocall sending legislation. Trump signed it, I think, yesterday. Okay, there you go. So we've talked about that on the show. You know, it's yeah. almost crazy to you know have your phone on these days. Um, the iPhone has a feature in settings. By the way, go to settings phone where you can choose to automatically silence callers that are not in your address book. Um, because, you know, it's just been become become crazy in some cases, you know, how many robocalls. So I'm glad the government's taking taking steps to clean that up. Yep, absolutely. And I, I actually one of the things I like really like about Android is that it does have a very robust system for identifying callers so they never come back again. Uh, you can mark them as spam. I think Google actually does something with that database. But I have to say, well, someone who's recently purchased a home and also someone who's recently uh, finished paying off a car after five years of car payments, I probably get 20, 25 calls a week from people that are trying to claim that I need to re-up my warranty and that if I don't act now, I'm going to lose something. And then the fact that most of this goes to my wife because she's the first name listed on our mortgage, but the amount of people that send us information that, that uh, is, you know, public record, right? Like when you take out a mortgage, it is a public record. When you purchase property, it is a public record, but they take that information and turn it into, um, you know, less than, than um, up and up sales opportunities. And I am looking forward to there being more enforcement there. I believe that this now increases the fine to $10,000. Um, when you're caught doing this, I think per instance of it, which would be extremely economically uh, devastating, I would imagine. But I will say, I feel like calls have been maybe slightly decreasing in the last year or so, but I can't imagine that a fine alone is going to do it. We need to start finding some authentication technology. I know that the major telecoms are working on this so that it's just not as easy to spoof numbers and otherwise get phone numbers for nefarious purposes. Ultimately, we're going to need a way, and this is where surveillance capitalism goes against this. We're going to need ways to effectively enter witness protection without being in witness protection. In other words, get a new phone number, not have that identifier, be able to be more anonymous. Um, and, and we're, we need, you know, phone system 2.0, which is not only SMS. And we've talked about, I think, a new update to media messaging. And I don't remember exactly what that was called. There's a new protocol that is coming about, but yeah. um, we're, we need it bigger than that. Hey, there is one more article if you want to pick it up quick. Uh, I think you put in the what to expect from phones in 2020 from CNET. Oh, 
Yeah, the, some of the stuff that, that's looking uh, future and forward in the world, but there are the, the three things that I think uh, you will be able to see in, in, in 2020 when it comes to our mobile devices. First, obviously, foldable is a big deal right now, and both Samsung and Motorola have released a foldable Android phone. The early prototypes seem really fragile and you know a lot of hubbub and price, I might add, for relatively little functionality, but the foldable technology is real, and it's becoming more and more realistic and less and less fragile. And so that's definitely something you'll see coming up. Obviously, 5G is here now, and all the major telecoms have some rollout in some way, shape, or form. T-Mobile claims it's the largest. Verizon says that they're actually the largest. And then to a lesser extent, AT&T and Sprint are working on 5G rollouts. The problem, of course, is that 5G can mean lots of different things. And um, based on my reading of the situation, 5G may just be really fast 4G for some, where in other cases, it's going to be game-changing. Um uh, uh, terabit is, is, uh, not an unrealistic speed. I did see a screenshot on, I read a lot of the, uh, uh, telecom subreddits on Reddit. Some, someone on the Verizon network in Boston pulled down 1.7 terabits per second speed on their phone. And he said he couldn't get it again, but he did it once and grabbed the screenshot and, uh, uh, just extraordinary amount of speed is coming to you. Again, this this is where individual students are going to have a greater quantity of bandwidth to the outside internet than your entire organization does. You know, via five G. This is what is coming. So right, absolutely. And then the other the other piece of technology was even better cameras. So. I would imagine it's certainly in the high-end phones, but some of the better camera technologies are going to start to sneak in the medium and low-end phones, which I think is, is great news for those that like to create with their phones. All right. Well, that's a good segue to Geek of the Week because I think you have something related to phones there. I do. So if you received a, something for for the holidays that you are actually abandoning an older piece of technology, especially if you are invested in something like the Apple or higher-end Android ecosystems, you should sell your old phone. Now, a lot of people, and I know this happens at the Friar household, will end up handing down phones um, to members of your family. But if that's just going to go into a drawer, right now is the best opportunity you have to recover some of the value of that by selling it in one of two ways. And I have two recommendations here. One of them is a swap, a Swappa, which is something that's something I actually picked up from Wes, and I've now both sold and purchased on Swappa, and it's a great service. I picked up both my parents' uh, recent updated used phones on Swappa and had extraordinary experiences. I've also sold a device on Swappa, and it's much much, much, much easier than doing it on eBay. And so um, a shout out to Wes for, for that recommendation. And then Gazelle will probably net you a lower price, but it's way more low hassle. Basically, if it's a phone that they're buying right now, they don't buy all phones, and oftentimes their price is lower than it would be otherwise, but they literally send you a box. You put the phone in the box, the check shows up a week later. And so several times when my family's done upgrades, we've been able to recoup some of the price of that hardware by selling to Gazelle. So Swappa and Gazelle will be my recommendations for getting red tech. And don't wait. A year from now, it's not going to be worth nearly as much. I'll take a picture of it. In our Walmart, we've got a machine that you can just sell your phone right there back. So awesome. uh, yeah, I'll have to check that out because we actually do have a few things in some drawers. And yes, no time like the present to sell. Uh, my uh, Geek of the Week is a podcast, and I've mentioned this. We've talked about it on the show before. This is the Humane Tech Podcast by Tristan Harris. You may remember us if you're a longtime listener, uh, talking about Tristan Harris and the whole uh, nonprofit that he started because 
He was the design ethicist for Google who has been, you know, famously pointing out that social media platforms are designed to work psychologically just like slot machines. Well, he did a great interview, um, uh, called The Cure for Hate. And, uh, it's by the founder of a group called Life After Hate. And on Twitter, it is, uh, M. Kaler, M-C-A-L-E-E-R. And, uh, his name is Tony. Um, McKayler. And, um, basically this fellow was a, uh, a right wing white supremacist. And as a result of different life experiences, including a family, uh, you know, came to see that that was not the, the choice that he wanted to be making for his life. And so it is a fascinating article because <clears throat> what's continuing to happen and is going to happen in 2020 elections, all this is we've got huge influence and impact by fringe outlier organizations that haven't had the megaphones that they have today. And so I thought this was a great interview that Tristan did. Uh, this organization, Life After Hate, is definitely one worth uh, pursuing. And one of the things he says is we can't just ban these folks, you know, off of platforms, uh, you know, block their sites and, you know, try to stop them from having any place to share. One of the things that the long tail, and they don't use that term, but the long tail has done is it's enabled, you know, like-minded folks to be able to connect virtually far easier than they ever could before. And there's good examples of that, but there's also negative examples. And so he talks about how we as a society need to be engaging these folks and, and helping them find community and find constructive, positive relationships find meaning and significance. Okay. This is far more than just saying, Hey, we have a new technology, you know, platform. It's going to solve all these problems. So these are human political psychological issues. So commend that podcast to you. So we are the EdTech Situation Room coming to you generally on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, wherever that happens to fall for your particular uh, time zone. You can find links to all of the referenced resources we have discussed today and more that we didn't have a chance to at edtechsr.com slash links. Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you when you're not sharing your wisdom here on the Etherwaves via StreamYard? I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, and I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, uh, early bird pricing, uh, available throughout the month of January for NCC 2020 at uh, the Washington State Convention Center in Seattle in March, blog.ncc.org or ncc.org. How about you, sir? Awesome. And I'm W. Fryer on Twitter, my blog, speedofcreativity.org. I will be... I guess, uh, so I've accepted the offer presenting at ISTE this year on uh, middle school digital literacy and media literacy. And you can find all the lessons and resources that I share for my fifth and sixth grade students that I have an opportunity to teach each day at mdtech.cassidy, C-A-S-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. So until next week, we encourage you to stay safe, stay savvy. Also, if you would take the time, give us a recommendation, a rating on iTunes and other places, finer podcasts are curated. Let your friends know you listen to the EdTech Situation Room. Reach out to us on Twitter. Let us know that you're a listener. Let us know if there's a particular topic that resonated with you or something you'd like to hear us talk about, and we may visit about it on an upcoming episode. Stay safe, folks, and Happy New Year.